Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have a full crew here in the studio today. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Brian. Morning, everybody. And morning, Philip. Hey, guys. So we've got a couple of good things to talk about today. One is talking about preparation for the fair. And I know there's some good tips that you guys have for people getting ready for fair season. We'll also talk about heat stress, which goes right along with fair season, unfortunately. And then we're going to talk about some research that was done here. We had Dr. Bortoluzzi on last week, and she's a, a new assistant professor in animal welfare here at K-State. She's going to talk about some of the research that she did last year working with our, our crew doing necropsies in the feed yard. Before we get into those topics, guys, I, I wanted to ask you, it's summertime. The gardens are growing. There's fresh food coming on. One of the things that there are several things that you say, well, I don't know if it'd be any better if I'd grow it myself or raise it myself or not. I want to know what you guys have growing or at home that is way better when you raise it yourself. Oh, this one's easy. Tomatoes. I mean, oh, I love my tomatoes. In fact, I'd have a garden with just tomatoes if it was up to me. Yeah, I, I think that's not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tomatoes are, I mean, sometimes you can get good ones in the store and sometimes they've been shipped too far from too far away and they're just not right. They're not, don't have the same taste. I'm trying to think of something that I'm trying to think of something I grow that you normally don't get in the store. You can't find in the store very easily. And I'm going blank at the moment, but I don't have a garden this year. And, but I do like to, to grow different vegetables and stuff. I like vegetables. <laughs> I, mean, I, like, I, do. I like vegetables was Philip's answer. Yeah. He's thinking that somebody, another nutritionist is listening. And they're like, the nutritionist has to say, I like vegetables. Okay. <laughs> so well, what about you? I, I think the tomatoes are, are a good choice, but there's a lot of garden. I, w- once in a while, I like playing pepper roulette. So my wife grows peppers in the garden and some of them are sort of hot. Some of them are really hot, and you never know which is which till you take yeah. a bite of one. So that's kind of a fun summertime game. Yeah, it is. Yeah, the one that I don't I, mean, I don't know why we grow carrots. I I don't think that garden grown carrots are any better no. than store bought carrots. No, if I which, wanted to, if yeah. I wanted to eat dirt, I could just eat yeah. dirt and sit, cut out the middleman. Yeah, there you go. So you're not a fan of root crops, is that what you're saying? Uh, no, I like potatoes. Okay, but not carrots. I'm just anti carrot. Or no, no beets, no radishes. Oh, I like beets. No. Beets are good. Oh, okay. It's just carrots. <laughs> it's just carrots, yeah. They're too good for my eyes. That's why I don't eat them. Mm-hmm. So fair prep. We wanted to give some tips because it's fair season. People are coming up, getting ready to go to the fairgrounds. I want to ask first, Philip, on kind of the nutritional side, what are some of the things that I need to think about when I'm getting ready to go to the fair? Well, think about your animal is transitioning it's kind of like just any other kind of transition you're moving calves from one place to another they're in a new environment especially if they haven't been to a fair before there's a lot of activity going on there's a lot of other animals going on or in the area and they're going to be kind of in a stressed situation and so you want to make their routine as normal as possible and so part of that is making sure that their feeding routine, you don't want them to go off feed at the fair. And so make sure their feeding routine is as normal as possible. So same feed, same feed pans if you can, same, same type of roughage if you can. So, you know, maybe they've been grazing or something like that uh, through the summer. But then at the fair, obviously, you have to switch them to hay. So making sure that they are familiar with whatever type of hay you're going to use and things like that. And then the other one is water. 
sometimes, especially out in the country, cattle aren't on rural water or on a well. Water has a different taste, a different smell, and you bring them into town to fair and chlorinated water, and they just won't drink because they just don't like the taste, they don't like the smell. And so there are things to pay attention to there. Maybe you need to haul water, maybe you need to filter water, do other things to make sure that they are drinking. Because like you said, it's going to be hot, and you sure don't want those cattle to stop drinking during that hot weather. So if I bring my steer to the fair and I have to bring water, how much water do I have to bring? This is math part of the pro- of the program. A lot. I mean, they're <laughs> going to drink a lot. There, there's, my, there's my idea of math. There you go. <laughs> they're going to drink mm, 15, 20 gallons a day. So you're going to need a pretty good-sized tank to haul water and a pretty good-sized bucket or whatever to hold or tub to hold water for them. Yeah, I think, I think it's a really important consideration because it always seems wherever you are, fair week is one of the hottest weeks of the year. You may have fans in the, in the barns or not, and it is really important that they have adequate water. Bob, I'm going to turn to you, and I'm going to ask a little different question. And to go to the fair, you have to get a health certificate. What are some of the common reasons that you see that animals would not be able to get a health certificate and go to the fair? Well, two of the most common are warts and ringworm. And, and warts, basically, on both of these, both warts and ringworm, it's important to address this well before the fair. And so with the warts, you're going to pinch them off, do, you know, do something, and you're trying to develop an immune response so the animal's kind of cleared up so that there's no more active warts on that animal. Ringworm is, it's unfortunate that it has that name because it's actually a fungus. Probably the closest thing to think about is it's like uh, athlete's foot. Um, and UV light, sunlight, is really good at getting rid of that. But a lot of times we bring these show calves into a barn, you know, to grow hair and that kind of stuff, which then removes that natural way of controlling ringworms. So a lot of times, if I can take them back outside, I'll do that. You can use some, you rough it up and use iodine or even, you know, an athlete's foot type of a cream. But again, those are going to take a while to kill and get rid of that active growth. And so all of this needs to be done weeks ahead of the fair so be paying attention to those calves and deal with this both of those both warts and ringworm you're not going to get rid of those overnight so you have to start that prep early and i'd go ahead and be in contact with your veterinarian if you have questions on either one of those because you actually want to make sure it is what you think it is well that's true too and and you know those are probably two of the most common reasons that a calf would not be allowed to show or get his health certificate the other thing that, that I have found that I think is really important is over the years I've seen situations where calves get injured in the process of hauling there. You know, so injured in the trailer, injured in the facilities at the fairground or home. And, and again, so really paying attention to everything that the cattle are going to be around. Um, and so look closely at those trailers. Maybe we haven't used them for a while. Is there anything sharp? Is there any, are the is the flooring all solid and safe? And, and so just over the years, the things that can happen to calves are they go off feed, like Philip said, or they get injured transporting one way or the other, or, you know, one of these issues that keeps them from being able to be shown. So those are all things to think about, and again, well ahead of time, uh, so you're not doing it the day that it's kind of stressful when you're taking the calves to the fair. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think both good points, so both on the nutrition side and the health side. Any other last-minute tips for fairgoers? And I think Philip mentioned it, too, is you need to be ready for it. It's, it could be hot, so have fairs, have air movement, 
Um, make sure that they're getting plenty of water. As Philip said, that is a lot of water. And so make sure, I want them to be drinking and keeping cool. Excellent. We appreciate your input. The last thing I would say is have fun. That's why we're doing this. So set it up to enjoy it. Enjoy that time with your family. Enjoy the time with taking your animals to the fair. Now we're going to go to the flip side. You guys mentioned heat. We're going to talk a little bit about heat stress. We want to talk a little bit about heat stress this time of year. We know that can be an issue, both cattle on pasture and cattle in confined areas. Brian, what are some of the first things that we might want to look for of cattle undergoing heat stress? Yeah, so it depends on the environment, right? If we're talking cattle on pasture versus confined cattle, I would look for slightly different things. If they're in confinement, we can, a lot of, you know, if their feed consumption goes down, things like that, we'd start to know, okay, well, they might show signs of heat, heat stress. The problem with heat stress is we really don't see anything until they get really advanced, right? So the, when they're doing the open mouth breathing, they might be standing with their elbows kind of out away from their body. And the reason they do that that is cattle use their respiratory tract to get rid of a lot of heat. And so they're trying to move a lot of air out to dissipate some of that heat. Honestly, the best thing for heat stress is to just kind of know the temperature and humidity. You're probably better off just the weather that you have is a better indicator than waiting to actually see signs in the cattle themselves. Great point. And adding to that, it's often the cooling down period or lack thereof in the evening yes that yep. make that makes it happen because you, they have a heat buildup day after day when we don't have those evening cooling periods because you can certainly look at the individuals or the group and there are some behaviors that will maybe be different on pasture what, what are some of the things philip that we can do to mitigate heat stress in in maybe our pasture cattle well i think one of the, the first things is have shade trees shade is a, a big impact our solar radiation has a big impact on the heat load those cattle accumulate during the day and so mitigating that through shade that could be shade trees that could be shade structures my experience uh, with a little bit of shade research is that trees are more effective than shade structures just something about the way the alive plant the uh, airflow and things through there well part but, of, part of it is depending on what type of shade structures or the number of trees Having inadequate shade means we're huddling, standing under one spot, for, and maybe worse than no shade. Yeah, so, yeah, it doesn't matter what type. If you have inadequate amount of shade, then all the cattle are trying to cram underneath of that shade, and they're all huddled up, and the ones in the middle are getting no airflow, and you still have some pretty severe heat stress in those animals. So the amount is very important, but the different types also make a difference. And even in a feedlot situation, shade can be very beneficial, but it's much more difficult to, to manage the structures that you need there in a feedlot situation. Use shade cloth or you could use solid metal roofs, and, and there's advantages and disadvantages to each one. But you kind of got to figure out what's going to work for you to try to mitigate that heat stress from a shade perspective. The other thing is just making sure you've got plenty of water. They're going to consume a lot of water when it's really hot. And you need to be able to let multiple cattle drink at one time. So big open tanks of water are a good option instead of trying to force cattle to drink out of a ball fountain where only one or two animals can drink at a time. Yeah, absolutely. Have the capacity because if they have to walk to go to the water, they're going to walk up and as a group and leave as a group. If you don't have the capacity in that water to manage that and the refill ability, they'll walk away without water. Brian, what about in our confined settings? What are some of the things we think about there? Yeah, so kind of the same. I mean, water, 
Shade is really important. I think, you know, Philip kind of mentioned airflow. So we want to make sure, obviously we're in confinement. So now we're talking about artificial structures providing shade, but we want to make sure we're not impeding airflow because that that's an important part of dissipating heat off of the cattle. The other thing that we think about is just management things. So, you know, if we have to work cattle for some, you know, if we're going to do any sort of processing, even moving sick, well, not even, especially moving sick cattle, right? Because they're going to be, if it's respiratory disease, they're even more prone to heat stress because like I said, they use their respiratory tract to get rid of heat. And if they have a compromised respiratory tract, they're not able to do that even as efficiently as, as a healthy animal. So we want to make sure that we are timing any of our handling procedures where it's the, the coolest part of the day. So that's typically early, early morning when we're trying to do that. We want to make sure that we are, when we're practicing low stress handling techniques, we want to take that even more extreme during the hotter times. Like we don't want to work the cattle. We don't want to excessively stress them. So all of those, so so even just how we manage them and work them can make a big difference as far as managing some heat stress. And, and like I said, hopefully these are all short-term things. We get through the, the heat episode and, and then we can kind of go back to more normal type procedures. But it, I would give myself a little more time, handle the cattle a little more carefully than, than I would normally. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a couple other things I might add to that, Brian. One, the pen flooring can be important. We all know everybody's gone out and walked on blacktop in the middle of the summer and been miserable. And not that we have cattle on blacktop, but really dark soils, dark pen bedding can absorb a lot of that heat and it becomes very hot. So you, you may, there are some folks that I know that have done some bedding, they've done some other things. This is a time when your mound may be good to get them up out of the low-lying areas uh, to avoid the wind. Yeah, you bring up a good point there, Brad. We look, we pay attention to the weather from the weather station that tells me it's X, you know, whatever the temperature and humidity is. But the, the temperature and humidity at the pen surface or the soil, the surface area there could be quite a bit different than what it is at, you know, 30 meters in the air where a weather station is measuring it. So we need to be aware of what the conditions are at the pen level there. You're in- advocating lying down on your back shirtless in the pen. That's <laughs> what I heard is your weather predictor. I had a question for Philip too, as we were talking about this, because I've heard we talk about handling cattle differently during heat stress periods, but what about feeding? Are there any changes we should make to our feeding practices when we're anticipating heat events? Usually in the pasture situation, we're not feeding enough to, to worry about it, but in a confined situation, we can, but it's logistically difficult. So we can help with the heat load if we move most of the feed delivery to late in the afternoon, because now they're going to consume most of their feed in the evening. And so then most of that heat load of fermentation is going to happen in the overnight hours when it's cooler and they can dissipate that extra heat better than if they eat all their, most of their feed in the morning. That heat load occurs right in the hottest part of the day in the afternoon. So it does help, and studies show that it actually improves feed efficiency and performance, but logistically, it's difficult to make happen. Yeah, I think one of the things that, as we've talked about before, it's important watch the weather, watch the predictions, and try to get ahead of it as much as you can. There are some things you have to do in extreme situations to try to get them spread out, get them to different areas if possible, when you know that heat's coming, and then try to avoid handling when, when you can be sure that your water's good if you if you have to there may be times you have to add extra water tanks to get through some of these periods so appreciate you guys thoughts on heat 
We had Dr. Bortoluzzi on last week and wanted to have her back. Dr. Eduardo Bortoluzzi is a veterinarian from Brazil who had her PhD here from Kansas State, just started a position as an assistant professor in animal welfare. Good morning, Eduarda. Good morning. So we're happy to have her with us to discuss some of the research she's been participating in. And I'll, I'll give a little bit of setup because as you joined our research group, you did your postdoc here with the Beef Cattle Institute. You became involved in a project that we did where we went out and did necropsies at feed yards. One of the areas that we were looking at specifically was the pulmonary system or the lungs. And we had identified some different types of lung lesions. One, which would be our typical bronchopneumonia, we think BRD, infectious disease. One is acute interstitial pneumonia or referred to as AIP, which is a little different pathologic process. Typically, we don't think of it as infectious, may occur later in the feeding phase. And then there's a third one, called bronchointerstitial pneumonia, or BIP, which is basically a combination of the first two. And often that BIP, or the combination between bronchopneumonia and interstitial pneumonia, is not really well reported. One of the things that you did was, you did a couple things, but one of the things you did that I thought was interesting is you looked at how well the clinical diagnosis, what do we see when they're alive, lined up with how well their gross diagnosis that we saw when they were dead. So tell us, tell us, what did you find in that part? Yeah, so what I found is when the feedlots are clinically diagnosing, they either choose AIP or BP, so bronchopneumonia, and we don't have a diagnosis for BIP clinically. So we saw a lot of differences between what we're seeing clinically and what we saw on necropsy. Especially with those BAP, sometimes we have animals being treated for either AIP first or BP first and then vice versa. They, they kind of swap. So sometimes you would get treated for both diseases, both BRD and AIP. The treatments are a little bit different between those, but the clinical signs are an animal that's depressed, increased respiration, off feed, hard to distinguish other than some of the onset, but it is important to distinguish between those diseases. Yeah, so Eduardo, if we could distinguish between those three diseases, so I'm a feedlot manager training my doctor and crew, what benefit does that gain for me if I could tell that it is a BIP versus just a bronchopneumonia or just an AIP? I think that is uh, mainly how you're going to choose the therapy you're going to use for that animal. So you have some different therapies for AIP or bronchopneumonia, but then when we have both together, we might have even a different way to treat that, that we're not there yet because we still need to define the BIP and see how much we're seeing that on the field. So there would be some different therapies that we could use. There might be some different treatments. We don't know yet. And one of the things that you also looked at was what are the difference, and and I'm going to say demographics, which is a broad word, but what are the differences in the types of cattle or the timing of onset of these diseases? And is there any difference between the three that we've mentioned, the bronchopneumonia, the BP, the AIP, and then the BIP or the combination of the two? Yeah, so looking into AIP, what we saw based on sex, so heifers tend to present more AIP and necropsy compared to uh, steers and we also saw something different from what we see in the literature. We saw that after 50 days on feed, they have the same probability of presenting AIP throughout the feeding period. And on literature, it says it's usually late 
and heavy heifers. So we saw the heifers, but that spread in days on feed was not described before. So, so this is something I think is really interesting to follow up on, because you mentioned when we've talked about AIP in the past, we say heifers, summertime, late days on feed. Well, this whole study was in the summer, so we, we, we can't look at that. But heifers were more likely, and the average days on feed at death was actually quite late. But when you look at when they were diagnosed, they were diagnosed throughout the feeding phase. So we can't say just because the average days on feed is, say, 100 days, that's not when they occurred. They occurred throughout the feeding phase all the way to the end, which made that average seem a little bit longer, which I thought was an interesting finding. How does that compare and contrast to our typical bronchopneumonia or BRD and our BIP cases. So for the BIP cases, we didn't see any differences in sex, but we also saw that it's spread out through the days on feed. After 50 days on feed, they have the same probability of presenting BIP at the time of death. And then the bronchopneumonia, we didn't see any factors that was significant in increasing the probability of those animals of presenting bronchopneumonia. Yeah, you were comparing what's the likelihood of them having bronchopneumonia versus AIP, for example, or, or BIP versus the other. But what was interesting, in your AIP cases, they had a little bit different pattern than your bronchopneumonia. And then those that had bronchointerstitial pneumonia or BIP, if they had not been treated, they were less likely to have that combination of the two diseases. If they had been treated once, twice, three times, they were more likely to have that combination of bronchopneumonia and interstitial pattern, which could be important as we're thinking about making that clinical diagnosis. Yes, I think that that's right on the point is that could help us decide and do a better clinical diagnosis at the time that we're pulling animals for treatment using those demographic factors. Yeah, and one of the reasons that started this research was questions related to feedlot deaths late in the feeding phase. And certainly we did necropsies throughout the feeding phase, but one of the things that we saw was that we did see some of those diseases later, but it wasn't all AIP, which is what you're telling me. Yes. And looking at the, the spread of when we saw those clinical diagnoses and also when we saw the deaths was really important. So you can see the spread of how many days on feed they were at time of death on AIP, BIP, and also BP. And you can see that, yes, AIP is going to be more towards the later period, but when you look at probabilities, that didn't change much. Yeah, absolutely. I think some really interesting research. We look forward, I know you've got an abstract that you're planning to present this fall based on this, and a paper will be coming out. We look forward to seeing the final results from your research, and good luck in your new position. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today, and as always, if you have any questions, comments, things you'd like us to talk about, send us an email at pci at ksu.edu.